Hi, and welcome to the Computer Architecture Podcast, a show that brings you closer to cutting-edge work in computer architecture and the remarkable people behind it. We are your hosts. I'm Suvinay Subramanian. And I'm Lisa Shu. Today, we have with us Professor Todd Austin, who is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. His research interests include robust and secure system design, hardware and software verification, and performance analysis tools and techniques. Todd has donned multiple hats, being a senior processor architect at Intel's Microprocessor Research Labs, a professor at the University of Michigan, serving, serving as the director of research centers like CIFAR, and more recently serving as the CEO and co-founder of the startup Ajita Labs. He is also an IEEE fellow and received the ACM Morris Wilkes Award for his work on SimpleScaler and the Diva and Razor architectures. Today, he's here to talk with us about durable security and privacy enhanced computing. A quick disclaimer that all views shared on the show are the opinions of individuals and do not reflect the views of the organizations they work for. Todd, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I enjoy this podcast. I've been listening to it since episode two. Great, great. That's great to hear. Thanks for your efforts on it, by the way. It's it's fun for us. Hopefully it's fun for the listeners too. So if you've been an early listener, you probably know that we always kick things off with a question of, you know, what's getting you up in the morning these days? Yeah, I'm I'm all about security and privacy today. In fact, more privacy more recently. I'm I'm really interested in building systems that have more durable security than existing systems, right? How do we get rid of the zero day bugs and the vulnerabilities and all that stuff? And that's led me on a, on a long path of building systems, working with DARPA to put those systems into uh, red teaming environments, learning what their vulnerabilities are. And this has led to some more recent work that I've got in my startup, which is uh, building a, a very durable security system in the Azure cloud. That sounds good to me as a Microsoft person. Maybe for our listeners who are maybe not the most familiar with this particular field, you've used the word durable now twice. Is there yeah. a specific meaning for what it means to be durable? So non-durable security, and a great example of non-durable security is Patch Tuesday for Microsoft Windows. Uh, you know, Every second Tuesday of the month, I believe, the patches come rolling in. And what they're doing is they're fixing bugs in the software that people, that they've either found themselves or that people have exploited in the software. So that's not a very durable way to build security. In fact, relying on your software to not have bugs in it is probably the least durable form of security because anyone who's ever written software before knows that it's, it's basically impossible uh, to get rid of those bugs. In fact, I am of the belief that there will never be a program that cannot be hacked. It just doesn't exist. And if you tell me one exists, I will say, we're going to have to wait till the end of time to see if any new vulnerabilities are discovered in the future that will hack this particular piece of software. And, and then the other aspect you have to worry about in security is, is side channels, which are all the rage in the computer architecture world today. And these are when a system has observable properties that reveal secrets about what's inside the system. And building durable defenses against those are very challenging. To give you an example, uh, Intel has this uh, environment, they call it Trusted Execution Environment, SGX, uh, Software Extension Guards. And it's designed to uh, basically take a process and encapsulate it inside an, a shell inside the CPU that nobody else can penetrate because of all the cryptography and other stuff that they have. But they put it on the same microarchitecture as all the untrusted software. And people find lots and lots of ways to manipulate the cache, the BTBs, the floating point power on, power off, et cetera, to, to basically sneak information in and out of that very protected execution environment. So by durable, I, I want to solve two problems. I want to make sure that the software gets hacked, my security doesn't fall, because you always hack my software. And two, I want to get rid of side channels. And I think if I can solve those two problems, then I can build durable security. With durable security, you don't get a call in the middle of the night saying you got to fix this bug, you know, like when log4j happened and then the government told all, 
all the employees, you are not allowed to go to Christmas until you fix this problem. They're still trying to fix it, by the way. It's way past Christmas. In this particular case, it's like, you know, RSA e-size is a durable mechanism, right? Because we were all using 1,024 bits for RSA keys. And then we knew like within two to three years, we should probably be upgrading to 2,048 bits where most of us are today. So that that's durable security. Yeah, thanks for the really quick overview on the anatomy of you know some of these security attacks and how they intersect with the hardware and the execution model. Maybe we can expand on some of the themes that you brought up. You talked about these uh, channels that reveal information and also you know software keeps evolving and bugs are always going to be there or people will find new ways to introduce bugs or exploit vulnerabilities and so on. Uh, so what are the properties or mechanisms or model that you need to have to tackle both of these uh, challenges? So it's really interesting. Let's talk about side channels. There's three things you need for a side channel. One, you need sharing of resources. Two, you need to optimize common cases. And three, you need fine-grained timing analysis. Okay, and there's three things you need for high-performance architecture. It's the same three things. Uh, so there's this fundamental tension between high-performance design, optimizing the common case, sharing resources so you don't need more transistors than you need, and, and then giving your programmers and your developers really fine-grained understanding over how much time you're spending in various pieces. When you have those features, it's possible when an untrusted and a trusted entity share the same piece of hardware the untrusted entity can infer information about what the trusted entity is doing. And, and just to give you sort of the classic case, it's called Coacher's RSA attack. RSA is an algorithm that it's, it's a crypto algorithm and it's based on exponentiation of large numbers. And inside the kernel of the algorithm, in older versions of the algorithm, there's a, a, a loop. And inside that loop, it, it looks at the private key the message you want to send, it treats it as a number, and it takes, takes it to the power of the private key. And so there's an algorithm inside there that's basically looking, is this private key bit a one, or is it a zero, or is it one, a zero? And it uses this classic algorithm from like a million years ago called square and multiply. When the bit is a zero, you square the result and add it to the previous result. And then when it's a one, you see you multiply and then square. So you do two things instead of one. You can either measure the timing of that, right? Because it takes longer to do a square and multiply than it does to do a square. And so the time dilation will be proportional to the number of ones and zeros within that part of the key. So that leaks information. Alternatively, if you're sharing the same instruction cache, the adversary can displace the code on the that runs as the true part of the if statement, is this key bit a one? And then it can run the algorithm repeatedly kicking that information out of the code. And then the amount of extra time it takes to run will be proportional to the number of iCache misses that you forced that other algorithm to do. So those interactions are the sharing of the cache and the optimizing of latency when you hit in the cache is revealing lots of information about what that other algorithm is doing. It's one thing we've figured out in the last few years is it's really hard to stop those things. You can focus on the cache and people move to the BTP. Focus on the BTP, people focus on the store buffers. Um, there's a paper, I think it's in the next ASPLOS. It's by uh, Xuan Wang from uh, Yale University. It's a great paper I recommend to everybody. It's titled uh, Leaky Front Ends. I tell people that this paper should be the 50th exclamation point on the back end of the sentence. You will never, ever, ever stop microarchitectural side channels because it looks at the front end of x86 processors creating front ends to try and figure out what code another application is running and it does this in three different ways in the front end on many different processors and it does it for power and timing it's hard and all the defenses people are proposing are based on cryptography but the problem is there's just not enough state in the in the microarchitecture to really hide stuff well. So, for example, we've seen a lot of papers on what are called randomized caches, where you basically take the index into a cache and you encrypt it before you go into the cache. So now I don't know where any of my data is in the cache. Well, it's in one of 256 places. <laughs> so it's it, it it with a little bit of patience you're going to actually find that information. So it's really hard to eliminate those microarchitecture. In, in terms of side channels, the most durable thing we have is either cryptography 
or isolation. So, you know, if you if you want something to be secure, it makes a lot of sense to me to move it out into a coprocessor. And then that coprocessor is built in a way where it doesn't share caches with untrusted code and stuff. And it can be built to be performant, but it has to be built to not have any of these, these vulnerabilities. And, and I think we see this happening in projects like Open Titan from Google, an open source trusted platform manager. When you choose not when you choose to put your trusted execution environment on the same microarchitecture as all the other code, you know, I, I think it's it's really a challenge to stop those side channels. Right. I think there are a few different messages over here, all of which I think are important. First, the observation that you know there are always going to be leaky channels. And so you need to live with that or have a system design approach that is cognizant of the fact that you all, always have leaky channels no matter what you do. And I think you mentioned two things about mechanisms, like isolation and encryption are two effective ways or mechanisms to build durable security into your systems. And the last thing was expanding on the isolation theme, sort of having a dedicated or specialized engine that is responsible for providing the security. Maybe it also overlaps with a common theme in security, which is security verification. All of these have this common theme, which is what is the root of trust that you have? Even with OpenTitan at Google, the yes. objective is to sort of build this root of trust. Maybe you can expand on uh, maybe one of these themes, including the root of trust and uh, how that plays into the philosophy of designing secure systems and the intersection with hardware as well. I'll do that by way of talking about how do you deal with the software vulnerabilities issues. So a few years ago, I had a project with Mohit Tawari at University of Texas and Sherrod Malik at Princeton and Valeria Bertaco here at Michigan. And we designed this processor called Morpheus. And Morpheus was trying to stop software hacking. And the way it did it was by encrypting pointers. And, and the idea was that it's it's really interesting. When you look at security attacks, it's really, really hard to find a security attack where someone doesn't need to know a pointer value or manipulate a pointer value. So if you can encrypt pointers, then you've really thrown a, a roadblock in the face of any security attack that needs access to pointers. And so we designed this Morpheus machine and we started to build it. When you work for DARPA, you have to build stuff and deploy it. And this particular program I was in called Sith, it was a program at DARPA. We had to build a RISC-V version of this processor and then we had to deploy it into a commercial red teaming environment. And what red teaming is, is where you just basically put programs up on these systems, you make security claims about them, and then they put these large bounties, you know, $50,000 bounties, where if anybody can penetrate your security defenses, they get they get that bounty, they get that money. And so people come from all over the place to, to break those things. And so we put up this, this server and we put this medical database on it. We said, come get all the juicy bits inside the medical database. And nobody penetrated. It was, it was incredible. It was a real uh, great success. In fact, I had talked to the people at the company that had done that red team. They said, it's incredibly rare that they'll, it was a three-month red teaming effort and there were no penetrations. That's amazing. Very it was, cool. It was exciting. And I've, I've been talking to the RISC-V Foundation about possibly adopt. It's a very simple little uh, optimization to the system. But that said, Morpheus is definitely hackable. <laughs> it's definitely hackable. It's just really, really hard to hack because you got to side channel out information about these pointers, right? And there's a lot of ways to side channel information out of these pointers. But I really like the idea of cryptography as a mechanism to, to provide some durable security. And so where we went after Morpheus was uh, we just said, let's not encrypt the pointers. Let's just encrypt the social security numbers and the strings and the things we care about. And that's where we are today. So today, the way we're building really durable defenses, and these are the roots of trust inside the system, are we are developing compute engines that execute directly on encrypted data. And what's really interesting about this approach is if somebody penetrates your system, then they have not penetrated your data defenses. Once they penetrate your system, they can steal your ciphertext, and then they can try to break that ciphertext. And this is so incredibly powerful that our threat model is no longer attacker, do not penetrate my system. Our threat model is here's a pile of data. It's encrypted under a key that only I know. And you, the programmer, can write any program you want. Tell me what that data is. But the way the system works is as you compute on the data, 
the inputs that you're computing on are encrypted and the results of the computation are encrypted as well. And so you can run whatever algorithm you want on that data, but only I, the holder of the key that encrypted the original data can see the end results of that. For me, what's incredibly exciting about that, and the reason why I'm in a startup right now is that's not really security, that's a privacy technology because it becomes possible for the encryptor of that data to have no relation to the person that is running that CPU on the encrypted data. So now I can take your encrypted genome, I can run my algorithm on it, which is doing disease analysis, for example, and the results of that computation are encrypted, I send it back to you and you can see it. What the startup is focused on now is, is commercializing that technology in initially Azure and then eventually in Amazon AWS. Yeah, that does sound super powerful because that right right now, and it, this kind of came up a little bit with an episode with Jim Jim Laris, but you know, we have a heavy reliance on software now for for everything, and even for you know for me for certain things, I'm like, oh, I, I want to have a a NAS at home because I don't want to put it in any cloud, not even my own company's cloud, even though I trust Microsoft, but like I'm just that kind of a person, like mm -hmm. I want certain things like in my house only, and then you you buy this NAS and there's software on the NAS. Yeah. You're like, I don't know sure. what you're, you know, like what this For thing sure. is doing. And this is, I, I bought this specifically so I could have like certain things like in the house. And so it almost like feels like you have nowhere to turn. And what you've just kind of described there is enabling any software anywhere to do its thing. Because right now it's a, it's a sort of twofold choice. Yeah. If you want the benefit of the software, you have to give up the info. Yeah. And so then in many ways you know some people may make choices one way or another but you're kind of kind of splitting that choice to being able to get the benefits of the software without having to give it the mm -hmm. info yes and in addition you know the whole internet is built on this idea that i give you my data you monetize my data and provide me a free service for that data right and i you know and maybe companies haven't always been the best behaved in how they utilize our data maybe they lose our data i read a very interesting statistic the other day what fraction of American adults have had their social security numbers stolen in the last 10 years. This is an NPR stat. Any guesses? More than oh. half. Yeah, it's about almost 80%. What? And half of us had our social security numbers stolen in a single breach in 2017, the Equifax breach, which was a run, you know, runtime code yeah. injection, you know, standard kind of thing. 76 days they were able to exfiltrate data from that. I mean, it's bad. Wow. So if we build privacy-oriented architectures, the permissions are no longer with the hardware. The hardware just processes stuff. The permission is actually embedded in the data. The example I always like to give is a voting machine. If I built a voting machine for a privacy technology, there's a lot of things you got to solve. First, you want to be confidential, right? So I want to be able to put my vote into the machine, but the machine cannot see my vote. There's technologies that do that. Multi-party computation, homomorphic encryption, Edge of the lab sequestered encryption technology. We do this kind of stuff, but that is a useless technology for voting, right? Because how do you know that I added your vote to your candidate or added your vote to my candidate? You don't, you have no idea, right? Nobody solves it. SGX doesn't solve that homomorphic encryption. That's an integrity problem. That's a computational integrity problem. So our, our technology solves that. So it gives you an end to end receipt. You, you actually put a secret in with your data. You then put it through the algorithm and then it comes back with a computational result. Uh, it's a, we call it a fingerprint, which actually tells you, did you execute the algorithm I expected uh, with the data that I passed to you? And that's an end-to-end -end receipt. So now you know that you you ran the approved algorithm. In fact, we can have, even have other people sign those, those fingerprints. And then there's one more problem you gotta solve. And this problem is what you need to solve. And I believe to actually make the technology uh, actually useful uh, in a commercial sense. You need the ability to render unencrypted results off that data in a safe manner. And let's go back to that voting machine example. If you vote, you want your vote to be private. Do you want me to run my algorithm without being perturbed? And you want a receipt of that, that it, that was run on your vote. But what if your vote didn't match any of the candidates? You'd sure like the machine to tell you, um, you need to cure your ballot. I didn't match any of these candidates. So in that case, you need the ability to decrypt a Boolean value 
and the machine to tell you, mm, I don't know who you voted for, but I know this much about your vote. It wasn't any of these candidates. Can you please fix your vote? That problem is the hardest of all the problems because once you give a system the ability to decrypt a piece of information, now you have to prevent the clever attacker from putting other pieces of information into that decryption capability. So ultimately it's an integrity problem. So if you're really good at solving integrity problems, you can now build this system. If you have all those features, now it's possible for companies that take your data and then harvest information off of it to do it in a way where they can't actually see your data. We call this form of computation, we call it secret computation. And there's a benchmark suite that we made. It was Michigan at Ajita Labs, NYU and Addis Ababa University in Ethiopia. We've been working together to build this benchmark suite. It's called VIP Bench. Uh, you can go to Bitbucket and download it. Inside there, we have this benchmark, which is uh, it's one of the Netflix challenge candidates. But what we've done is we privatized what movies you've watched and how much did you like them for all the candidates. And it runs this matrix factorization algorithm across the entire database, completely encrypted, and then produces a a set of encrypted results, which are the movies that we think that you would like to watch. But never does the CPU ever get to see what movies you like. Never does it get to see what movies you recommend, but it gets to accomplish the goal of doing recommendations. Basically, it creates an opportunity to do computation and computation services, and then even render statistics off that data in a way that, that's that's safe. I haven't seen any systems able to do that yet. So it's super exciting to be able to sort of be first first movers in that in that space. So this may be because I'm I'm by no means a cryptography expert at all. In fact, I, I would say I, I know very little about it. So it's it seems hard for me to imagine how you can potentially aggregate and reason about encrypted data. So for example, like on a voting machine, like if you have a whole bunch of encrypted stuff passed through, like how are you actually then able to say on the inside, so like, okay, this guy actually got 32 yeah. votes when all I got was a bunch of garbles. Yeah, 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 yeah. How does that so work? There's, there's, so there's really three ways to do this today. So one way is homomorphic encryption, where they actually design a cryptographic algorithm where you can encrypt data, you can decrypt data, and then there's also an algorithm to add two ciphertexts together and multiply two ciphertexts together. So you get add and multiply. You don't get less than, so good luck sorting your data. You don't get, you know, it's it's really limited because you have to be able to come up with these homomorphisms in the ciphertext space. And they're also very expensive. These algorithms, um, Microsoft Seal is an example of, of a actually pretty high performance implementation of this. But still, you know, you're talking 10,000 times slower than native execution. But it is possible to do that. The second approach is uh, what's called multi-party computation, where you take a piece of information that you want to perform secure computation on, and you bust it up into little chunks. So, for example, you know, if, if, you, if you want to add a bunch of values together, I give part of that value to different entities, and then everybody adds their components, and then there's a final phase. It's not decryption, but it's the, sort of the aggregation phase where, you, where I finally get the final results. And then the idea is since all those systems are different, you got to hack into all those systems at the same time to get that data, like log4j, for example. It's certainly possible, but it's it's harder than hacking into one system today. Our approach is we just have a functional unit that's got a public-private key pair. It can expose a key inside the functional unit. And then inside the functional unit, it does AES decrypt. It does an op on an ALU, and then it does a re-encrypt with a high entropy cipher and sends it out. It's just basically there's no software in the box and there's no side channels in the box. And so it's just a piece of hardware uh, that does that. As an architect, you have to contend with that latency. So, you know, we got a thousand ways to get rid of that latency and they all, you got to do it without adding any more side channels. But uh, it's certainly possible. I mean, it's just an architecture problem, but it's a bunch of latency. You know, AES, it takes about 40 ALU cycles to decrypt and 40 ALU cycles to encrypt. So, you know, you take your one cycle add, and when you make an encrypted add, it's now 81 cycles. You have to tolerate those latencies. Fortunately, there's a lot of locality in what we do, so we can. it's pretty easy to tolerate those latencies. Gotcha, okay, makes sense. So then for this kind of like special engine that you have on the side, you've made it isolated. So now you don't have potential speed advantages of say sharing with a bunch of other stuff. And then you've also, 
essentially put like a chastity belt around the, C the CPU or the ALU exactly. or whatever. Exactly. Function. Yeah, the CPU throws high entropy ciphertext at it and it comes back out of the functional unit high entropy ciphertext. So in fact, you want a random number generator, you just assign one to an encrypted variable over and over again. The ciphertext of that variable, it'll pass NIST uh, randomness tests. Because what you can't do is you can't, one can't be encrypted a certain way, right? Because if somebody discovers a value is true or false, all of a sudden they'll, they'll know how to evaluate all the relationals. So you have to have what's called a high entropy cipher, which is like, if I want to encrypt a one, there's two to the 64 ways or two to the 128 ways to encrypt a one. So you get a little bit of expansion in the data size, but in exchange for that, you get this sort of very durable, you know, to, you know, the systems we are building today to penetrate the defenses, it's, it has nothing to do with hacking, right? Hacking is even not, it's not even on our plate because hacking just gets you to the ciphertext. Our hacking experience, you're already at the ciphertext, you're the programmer. So hacking is about side channels. Can you find a side channel either in the cryptography or in the timing? Uh, we don't do physical yet, but we will at some point because, you know, physical is a little harder in the cloud because, you know, you, you can't take your oscilloscope into the Microsoft data center. They probably stop you at the door. Uh, but, you know, if you look at like Jakub Zephyr's research on FPGA based side channels, I mean, he's been able to do some remote side channels by being co-resident on the same FPGA. So there are some ways to do physical measurement. That's where you look at power, voltage, leakage current, and then that can tell you some information about the computation that's going on. So you got to address that eventually. Once you get rid of the side channels and once you get rid of software hacking, then the strength of the system is the strength of the cryptography. So you want to get this data, you got to break the crypto or you got to steal the key from whoever uh, encrypted the data. And that's a way different game than we're playing today, right? That's not about looking for turn-oriented programming hacks or who has an updated log for J. That's like, can you break a yes? Yes, no. To me, that's super exciting. That's that's really exciting. Right. Uh, it's definitely a very interesting approach to use encryption in the computation pipeline. Um, I just wanted to expand a little bit on, the, on that. I mean, in general, when you look at the trade-off space for you know, any mechanism that you build for security or privacy, you have, you know, what's the functionality that it provides, what's the security characteristics or what are the security definition, and then how efficient it is, like what are the overheads involved in enabling this particular mechanism. And uh, you talked about a few different methods by which you could enable that there was fully homomorphic en encryption or FHE, then there was multi-party communication, and then you have your encryption-based methods, which are sort of in the pipeline. And I think you rightly pointed out that, you know, homomorphic en encryption is has a pretty strong security guarantee or security definition but it also tend, turns out to be quite expensive from a computer standpoint back on that a little what is the oldest he cipher 2009 can't be older than that because that's when they figured out how to do a fhe an 11 year old cipher who wants to use an 11 year old cipher that's a young cipher Durability in cryptography comes with 20, 30 years of, no, I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious. These ciphers could be very strong, but there was, you know, for example, there was an attack on BFE, which is a very common uh, homomorphic encryption cipher. There was a sort of a, an, a, there was an attack on the algorithm itself, I think in 2019. Part of durability for ciphers is that they get old and that they get a lot of exposure to cryptanalysis by the community. So. One nice thing about hardware-based approach is you don't invent your own your own ciphers. That that's definitely a valid point. But I did want to sort of expand on the overheads of sure. you know, the computation itself. Like FHE, also we know, like regardless of the durability of the cipher itself, assuming yes. it's durable and secure, it nevertheless is quite expensive to do homomorphic yeah. encryption. I think there's been a bunch of accelerator papers as well, which propose accelerators for FHE. Figure out. Know, what is the right way to speed up those computations? It looks like you're also doing encryption in the processor pipeline or within your secure processor pipeline. And yeah. uh, can you comment a little bit on the overheads of doing that? You said it takes like maybe 40 cycles. Uh, yeah. How do you sort of fix that? Because normally in the processor pipeline, we are used to one cycle, five cycles. And when yes, you start hitting yes, 10 cycles, yes. people are like, okay, that is too many cycles. So can you talk a little bit about the overheads of the encryption-based approaches itself? Yeah, well, you know, 
even FHE finds interesting applications. So it kind of depends on the application to what overheads you can tolerate. But um, you know, if you're doing machine learning training, you're going to want those overheads to be super low because you know you don't want your two-week run to be a two-year run. So currently, we're deployed in FPGAs in the cloud, so our overheads are sort of artificially high because we have to get you know we go through you know our ops are going through PCIe, but even then we can find some pretty interesting applications. We're about 50x off native in our in our initial product right now. Um, which is literally thousands of times faster than other other technologies. If you integrate this, we've run Gem Five simulations. You integrate this tech into the pipeline, you can get within two x, no problem. And here's what's really interesting: of that two x, only a quarter of that is exposed encryption latency. The rest is exposed algorithm changes because there's two things you have to do to algorithms when you you basically go secret. You have to eliminate the memory and the control side channels. So that means you need to, you can't use a secret variable to influence an if condition in the program. So that means you need to do predication. If everybody remembers predication from your architecture class or if conversion, you're gonna, you're gonna execute both the true and the false side of a, of a condition test. And then you're gonna select the value using a, an encrypted primitive. That way, there's no variation in the underlying algorithm based on the data that you're actually running on and doing decisions on. And the second thing is you you have to have uh, oblivious memory accesses of some form. We have a kind of ORAM that we deploy in our framework um, and various optimizations around that as well. But what it basically means is that as you change the inputs of an algorithm, the way it accesses memory does not change in any statistical manner. It can be random, for example, or it can be fixed, but it cannot change based on the input changing of the data. Because if, th if that's true, then you have a memory side channel and you can do all your specters and meltdowns and all those other things to try to figure out what's coming out of memory. Now, of the that 2x overhead for your most fastest uh, private computation, one quarter of that is exposed ciphertext latency that we weren't able to get rid of and and three quarters of that are those algorithmic changes but had a really cool result i had two summer students work for me last summer and in vip there was we picked in vip the benchmark that was hit hardest on its order complexity because of if conversion and oram and this was an algorithm called flood fill if you remember if you ever played candy crush when you you know crush a candy flood fill algorithm goes to all the other candies that are connected and that algorithm's ordered n squared for an n by n array, and it's completely recursive, right? So it's it's totally control driven. And then I rewrote the algorithm to be what we call data oblivious, and it was order n to the fourth, which is pretty bad. I'm not a great programmer. Okay, and so, so I challenged them both to come up with their own algorithm that beat order n to the fourth, and they both came up with an ordered n squared algorithm, which is super exciting to me because that means that if you if there's an algorithm that's very inefficient when it's running privately, just redesign the algorithm to not look at its own data. And, and, and it was so clever. Both of them had such an interesting, clever algorithm that they came up with. So I'm very bullish on even beating this 2x one day in terms of performance. And I think if we can get within 2x or 1.5 uh, for fully encrypted computation, then, and it's really cheap, I gotta say, it's really cheap to deploy as well then you you can create a world where people can start to have control over their data but you're not hamstringing hamstringing companies so that they can't render value off of your data so i i'm i'm super excited about these what these technologies can do for you know the state of privacy and security in the future yeah that's really exciting yeah. i think it's also a common theme in uh, some of our other uh, conversations with folks like for example even in the case of accelerators for you know specific domains, you often need to rewrite the algorithm or change the algorithm so that it's amenable to acceleration. And it sounds like even for security or privacy enhanced computing, definitely, uh, you probably want to tweak the algorithm so that it's more amenable to providing you yes. the properties that you want. Uh, that's yeah, that, that's definitely very interesting. And uh, I think it's a good theme to sort of take home. Yeah, I was just gonna say for 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 this whole system to work, it sounds like it's like all all the pieces have to come together, right? Because you've got this this hardware layer that that essentially is this isolated encrypted 
um, mechanism for computation. And then you've got the, the software layer, which does need to potentially be rewritten to sort of mask um, any sort of potential like code base on channels. And then, and the two of them need to come together. So, so for the stuff that Suvene was just talking about, where for domain-specific acceleration, you might want to rewrite your algorithms. There's usually some high amount of motivation to do that rewriting because mm -hmm. it's like the person who is adding the value to the data is the person who is rewriting the code. But now in this case, the rewrite of the code sounds like it might come from potentially elsewhere than the company that's pr providing the value via the software. Is, is that the case? And so then now there's potentially less motivation to actually do that rewrite. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Is that true? It depends. So part of the commercialization of this tech is figuring out how do you get into people's hands with the least amount of friction. So today the technology is a, it's a C++ or, or Python library where you actually declare variables encrypted if you care about them uh, not being visible. And then, and then you can port code into it or you can write fresh code. You know, longer term, I think we want to, you know, I want to put this into, you know, uh, databases. So I can have encrypted columns and I can do all the things I want to do on my encrypted columns. Uh, I want to I want to put this into the TensorFlow framework so I can have uh, you know I can have private models or I can have private inputs on my machine learning models. I think the the key to sort of reducing that friction of adoption is to is to is to find frameworks that it, that it lends itself to well where privacy is important. And you know, there's enough information in the compilation framework that you can you can automate the process. We we don't automate the transformations of the programs today. We can at some point. Today, what we do is we you define the variables you want to be encrypted in your program, and then we tell you what you can't do. <laughs> so if you can express the computation, it is safe. It is safe. Uh, but you know, if you use it, you know, if you're porting, I've ported tons of code in this framework. When you port stuff over and it's an if statement. It doesn't compile it and, and make it unsafe. It just says I can't do this. So, it's unfortunately, if you want a, a system to be really safe, you have to eliminate the bad programming practices that that are so um, so prevalent in the world today. But fortunately, we can automate that process eventually. And then, can you automate that process without taking an order of complexity hit on your algorithm? Probably not. So, I, you're sort of the longer term vision is really to you know what are the important algorithms that we don't have the, that we took big order complexity hits on and how do we redesign those algorithms so that they can be data oblivious and and don't create side channels and how they how they do that and then, and then another thing yeah, i'm just i'm trying to figure out what else can we do with data oblivious algorithms uh, so i'm sorry I'm, I'm on the, i'm now walking the earth going to all my old places in computer architecture to figure out where i can use this technology because I, I want to create pull instead of push. You know, I want to. I want people to say, "Oh, this is a very interesting property in an algorithm. How can I use this to, uh, you know, solve whatever problem that I have that has nothing to do with security?" And I think, I think, I think I can find a couple opportunities for that, just to sort of build more momentum around this idea of these these very special algorithms that don't have these side channels in. Cool. That sounds exciting. So I think at this point, maybe we want to switch gears sure. a little bit. So Todd, I, I've known you quite a while and you're one of the most kind of like naturally enthusiastic people that I know. And you, you've done a whole lot of different things, you know, uh, across mm -hmm. different domains, both academically in terms of subject matter, as well as, you know, like leading CIFAR at this, this startup. And, and I remember the last time we spoke, you were talking about this, the work you were doing with this university in Ethiopia Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you move between these different domains, always with such a smile on your faces, too. Yeah, well, I, I like having lots of stuff to work on. You know, especially when you're doing research, there's a lot of fits and starts in a project. And I find that I, I get my best ideas on Project X when I'm working on Project Y. So I like to have a lot of different things. You know, my PhD students all tend to be working on their own thing. Um, and I like to take on even non-technical projects like the stuff in Ethiopia. Almost 13 years I've been working with the university there to help them build their capacity for educating computer science students. Computer science is hot here at Michigan. 
it's just as hot in Ethiopia too. Everybody wants to be a computer scientist and they need more, more and more profs. So I've been, you know, as part of that effort, I've been taking on research scientists here from that institution and sort of helping them get over the hump on their PhDs and then help them build up capacity there. And then, and the, in the process, I mean, I've recruited so many amazing students from Ethiopia into my PhD group here. And now they're, Suvene and I were talking about, <laughs> there's one that's in his uh, group at Google now. Uh, so it's, it's really exciting. And, and the way you keep excited about it is, you know, it's like there's always a taller mountain to climb and interesting problems to work on. And you're, you know, you're always surrounded by all these young people that are just trying to figure out how to do research and how to be successful in their careers. And, you know, really being a part of that process and helping mentor those people into that is, is super exciting. You know, I, I tell people I'm institutionalized, you know, don't make any offers below six figures, seven figures uh, for industry because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I really like being an academic. <laughs> I, I really, I really like the the life that we have. I, I wish I could convince more of my students to go into academia. Uh, my senior PhD student, she is definitely interested in academia, so I have to keep nurturing that uh, that thought. But I, I love it, and I love just bopping around to different projects and just having something interesting to think about all the time. Great. So how did how did you get into architecture? at all and then you talked about being institutionalized at michigan maybe you can talk a little bit about your origin story i suppose yeah sure um yeah i come from central wisconsin a little tiny town um early on i i discovered computing from a from a, a teacher i had at school who was really into computers and i got into computers and then i where I came from, nobody really went to college. Either you went into farming or the military. This is like mid seventies. I thought computers were pretty cool. So I, I thought I'm going to go to college. And so I went to university of Wisconsin and studied there to get my electrical engineering degree at the time. Cause that's where I was also interested in hardware too. I, I'm really interested in how things work. How do things function? Um, when I got my electrical engineering degree from University of Wisconsin, I went to work. What was interesting, I didn't even know what grad school was at that time. And and I, I feel like no one ever talked to me about grad school when I was an undergrad. I mean, it was, and I, I see in my students today, a lot of them have parents that went to grad school, right? I think grad schools, a lot of people learn it from their parents. I certainly didn't. I always, I make it a point now whenever I teach an undergraduate class to always spend at least a half a lecture every semester talking about what is grad school? Why would you want to go to grad school? And I'm very pro grad school. I mean, I always, when students come to me and say, should I go to grad school? I said, no, that's not the right question. The right question is, can I go to grad school? Cause grad school is the best. And, and the master's degree, I think is probably the very best degree, you know, in terms of how it can give you, access to better jobs and such. And then students say, they always ask me, well, what about money? And I say, well, if you're worried about money, you already made a bad decision, right? You're an engineer, right? You should have been a, should have been a lawyer or a doctor, right? So don't worry about the money, you'll be fine. <laughs> so I didn't know about grad school. I went to work at, at Xerox, was my first position after my bachelor's degree. I was on this ginormous copier team uh, we were building this a 3090 copier and it was this huge embedded system i was a real-time programmer on paper path which means that i was part of the programming team that was making the paper go around uh, and so you need to debug these systems we had one for 200 programmers we had one system that we could debug on just one at the time and so of course i'm a junior member of the team i'm like debugging tuesday night at 3 a.m this is when I'm debugging my code. Uh, and I, I got this idea. I'm going to build a simulator for this entire machine. You know, I built a Z80 simulator. had Z80 processors on it. And I built network ports. I built simulators for all the, you know, basically emulators for all that stuff. And I got to the point where you could literally boot the entire image of the system. And I built a little back end that would describe the physics of the of the photocopier so that you could you know to a first order you could tell if your stuff was actually going to run then you could just get onto the real hardware and do the tweaks that you need to to make sure you were capturing everything 
that was so successful it started shrinking the schedule of this ginormous project and so my manager said uh yeah todd's gonna lead a team to develop that for other projects as well and they plunked me into what was called the webster research center which was the dual it was the east coast dual to the palo alto research center so now all of a sudden i'm like in meetings with mark weiser and butler lampson and like all these people i'd never heard of actually but now that i'm a computer scientist phd you know these are super famous people and i'm like looking around and like what do these people do you know you know what they do they do whatever they want <laughs> and so that i figured <laughs> okay so to do this they need a phd um and so then i thought okay i'm gonna go back and get a phd and so i went back to wisconsin i i'd taken a class with guri sohi computer architecture class i really like hardware and software i like being at that boundary so i went back and studied with guri i was with guri for six years learned so much there that was a really cool experience i don't i don't know how many super awesome people come through wisconsin but it was just like i mean i was like bob at philosophy sarita advey you know and doug berger and scott breach and vj kuma i mean it was just like just you were just like tripping over people that are really well known today it was a really cool experience and then as i ended towards my graduation i thought like oh you know i want to go into academia but i haven't built a processor or anything right i'm going to be a computer architect that has never built a processor and so i th i thought like well i should probably go to like industry for a little bit at that point i went to intel and that was for me was really my postdoc and i got on uh, i was on the uh, Pentium 4 advanced technology development team that was so interesting what was so interesting to me at intel was that it the challenges they had were not so much in architecture right they had all the solutions in architecture their challenges were in verification cost you know it was incredibly expensive to verify their hardware and so when i left intel to take a position in michigan i wanted to work on verification cost and i am not a mathematician so i can't do formal verification i'm just a you know hardware guy i just build interesting architecture so my first project at michigan was this project called diva which was a processor that could tolerate its own design bugs <laughs> which was it would uh it had a front-end processor which was really big and capable and it had a back-end processor which was very correct and simple and then it used the front-end processor as a predictor for branches and stuff and what was really interesting about that project and what really changed my career was it was so different than anything i'd ever had an opportunity to work on and the thing that was most exciting about it is when i would go and present it people thought it was either a really good idea or a really bad idea. I remember one time I gave a talk at Intel and somebody came up to me afterwards and says, so you're telling me I'm going to release a processor with bugs in it? I go, well, not in the back end, just in the front end. I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. And so I learned, I learned my philosophy for research really got developed there. And it, it's what I call a rule breaking approach to research, which is very simple. Find a rule, nobody breaks. And these rules are they're very easy to find they're like in the front of textbooks you know there's stuff that's always always taught to people and so one of the things you know you're taught in computer architecture is you can't release a processor until there's no bugs in it you know but here's the reality is they all have bugs in them i gotta tell you that they all have bugs in them they just don't hopefully you don't have bugs that are going to cause people a lot of real big problems so you know, I, I started working on designs that would try to break that rule. And sometimes when you break that rule, you find something really, really, really interesting. That was my first project. And now I'm working on these encrypted systems, which is like, you know, there's a there's a rule in security, right? You will never build a system that is unhackable. Now, that may be true, but I'll do my best to come as close to possible as, as I possibly get. It is pure heresy to suggest you could build a system that cannot be hacked. So again it's a, it's a rule i would love to break one day It'd be really exciting yeah and and then and then that's your that's your way to live forever to find out if it's true right yeah exactly so you've done several hats in academia and industry and you talked to us about the journey 
uh, in which you learned a lot of different things from different places. But mm -hmm. a very high level, based on your experience, uh, what do you think the architecture community is doing well? What are things that we are not maybe focusing on as much, either in the teaching or on the research side? And how can we sort of improve that in the coming years, especially as the landscape of mm -hmm. computing is also evolving, right? That's a really great question. Well, I'll say one thing I think we're doing pretty well is we're focusing on climate in the community, which I really value those efforts and try to be a part of them whenever I can. Because I think uh, climate is super important. We don't want to be places where we don't feel welcome. We don't feel valued. That's something I've been really involved with here at University of Michigan. It's absolutely something I've been involved with in my startup. And I'm really glad to see that the architecture communities involved in that as well. I think that's incredibly important. Something that comes to mind here is I think I always say that I think I wish the hardware community was more like the software community. And I feel very much like we're starting to do that. Uh, I'm super excited about Risk Five and the open source movement in the computer architecture community. I, I'm I'm really I think that's an incredibly powerful development. The work that I did on the Morpheus project that I talked about earlier was completely enabled by the CPU work that came out of Berkeley that you know rolled into the Sci Five uh, startup, et cetera. That was completely enabled by that. So I, I love to see this movement of open source hardware. People don't understand. You know, people in industry often have a difficulty understanding why open source hardware is valuable. And I just want to take a moment to explain to that person who is listening to this podcast and says, how do I make money on open source hardware? When you create things in industry, you have a certain amount of money to spend on those things. Nobody has infinite money except maybe, you know, a few of the bigger companies. But when you only have a limited amount of money, you want that investment to be as valuable as it can be, right? So what the software community does is they say there's certain things that everybody needs that don't provide value to the products we're building. So let's make them free. And they're not really free, but what they are is they're maintained by everybody and everybody shares and nobody owns or charges for those things. And that makes a lot of sense. To me, that makes a lot of sense, even for an instruction set, right? Like what instruction set does your phone use? You know, well, probably ARM, but if it used RIG 5, would you even know it? No. Why? Because instruction set provides no value to your phone. So why do we have to pay for it? When that happens, you all of a sudden, you can take that fixed amount of resources that you would have spent building instruction sets and compilers and operating systems and all this stuff that provides no value to your end product. And you can start to spend it on the accelerators and the you know, and the and the new instructions and the you know the other things you're going to add that are going to provide lots of perceivable value to your project, to your end project. And so, what open source really does is it provides a means for reducing the cost of producing innovation, and that is something that we definitely need in the hardware community. We need to focus on making it less expensive to innovate. And I think if we could do that, that would be really beneficial. I've had this interesting experience where now I'm kind of in a software org in many ways. And the approach to building things between software and hardware is so, so, so different. Where yeah. with hardware, it's like, you know, you have to do things so far in advance, get it all figured out and get it all set up. And then it's very rigid. And then you have to you know spend forever verifying it and with software. Mm -hmm. It's just like, let's just, you know, deploy a little something and then we can fix it. We can continuously be agile about it. So that's like one thing. It's like the software development is very agile and the hardware development is yeah. pedantic and get it figured out along in advance. Do you feel like the open sourceness? So I get that that kind of like reduces the cost of innovation because it provides everybody like a, a substrate where it's just like, okay, the ground is, you know, not everybody has to dig their own like sewer pipes or whatever. Yes, right? They're exactly. just there. But does it, also enable more agility similar to the software world do you think or is it just that kind of providing everybody a, a base ground floor that's a great question i would say um i think agility is less of a feature of the design more of a disease feature of the design language most of the risk 5 stuff is specified in chisel and chisel is 
it's flexible once you build that flexibility into it, but building that flexibility into it is really, really challenging. It requires you to build a program, a generator for what it is you want. And if you want to change the things that it creates, you need to modify the generator. And that takes a lot of background. You need to understand Scala. You need to understand Fertile. You need to understand uh, Chisel. It's, it's very, very challenging. And pushing myself and students over that hump was really really difficult but when we did we got a lot of value out of that infrastructure i i think that the challenge there is really just you know what is the python of hdls well chris batten would say it's pi metal which is his python based yeah. hdl which is actually pretty awesome uh, i must say i think the key there is really innovation in in the hardware description language so i look like you know uh, chris batten at cornell adrian sampson at cornell they're those two folks are doing really interesting work on taking advanced language features from programming and putting them into uh, hardware description languages i've got a project uh, here at michigan called twine which enhances chisel to uh, support heterogeneous design in a more sort of Lego block fashion. So yeah, that I think that's where those benefits will, will eventually come from. I would love to see, that's another reason why I'm really excited about FPGAs on everything, because if every FPGAs are on everything and everybody can benefit from programming hardware in consumer class CPUs, then it makes a lot of sense for the open source uh, software community to really address the programmability of those systems. It's interesting to look at like Saman Amar Singe's work at MIT, where he's kind of taking these Jonathan Reagan Kelly's halide and, yeah. and putting hardware backends on it. That's really interesting stuff because now, now you can learn a language that is in a particular domain and generate hardware from it. You know, it could be, you know, TensorFlow or Halide or any of these any of these domain specific languages and then generate hardware from the back end. That's That'll probably be when things really get moving along. So that I, I would say the cost of designing stuff is, is probably the worst thing that we do. <laughs> but uh, but things like uh, open source hardware are, are really helping in that in that particular case. There's also a movement towards open source FPGAs and open source EDA tools. That's very really incredibly exciting. And I think you know I see I see a lot more hope for the hardware community with uh, this kind of stuff as a hardware guy, you know, every year, you know, the software world gets a little bit bigger and the hardware world gets a little bit smaller. Maybe that makes our talents more valuable, but it also makes it a little more lonely and it makes them on an innovation on this side of the fence of the architecture fence, a little less interesting. So I really like the idea of all the open source stuff that's happening. I'm super excited about that. Also, I'm really excited about Intel buying Xilinx and AMD buying, no wait, AMD bought Xilinx and Intel bought Altera. Thank you. Okay. I'm really excited about that because that in a sense, you know, if they're smart, which I hope, well, smart by my standards, uh, they're going to slap FPGAs everywhere. I think that's super exciting for a number of reasons. One is now, you know, anybody that can write software can also design hardware as well. And, and then the other thing that is really exciting to me is like, what are the what are the accelerators of tomorrow, right? Today, everything is all about heterogeneity. And, you know, how many, uh, you know, neural net accelerators does the world need? Probably a couple more. So if you're on a project like that, it's okay. Yeah, I, I want to know what are the what are the next accelerators? And I, I think that, you know, having FPGAs everywhere will help answer that, that question. And I think that's really exciting. And again, that just really reduces the cost of design because I think design cost is really the, the, the biggest challenge for our, for our community. And, and uh, I want to see more startups, more open source projects, more, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think, I think we're moving that direction. I'm pretty, uh, I feel very positive about that trend, even though the sort of the overall picture is one of a shrinking, shrinking hardware community, shrinking sense of what we can deliver, shrinking, amount of value we can get out of our future silicon so i mean I, I i do like the open source trend to counter that i think that's a very valuable and timeless message on both on the technical side and the broader ecosystem or the people side 
which is how do you enable innovation, uh, both in terms of ideas and the technical ecosystem, but also in terms of the people, the climate and the values in our community. So I think that's a message that's very well taken. And mm-hmm. hopefully we can push forward on all of these themes and you know ensure that we continue innovating, continue bringing the best people into this very exciting space. Absolutely. And unfortunately, despite the fact that we've had so much fun talking to you, Todd, I think we're about out of time. I want to close with saying, Professor Todd Austin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a total delight to speak with you as usual, and um, we're glad you were able to join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, and uh, if anybody has any more questions, feel free to reach out and contact me. I'm Austin at umich.edu. And, and thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Todd. It was great speaking to you. And to our listeners, thank you for being with us on the Computer Architecture Podcast. Till next time, it's goodbye from us.